Hi, this is Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from rainy North Bend. We're headed into another week of rain and maybe some more snow next week. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. And actually, this is a patron-only episode for folks at Tier 3. It's what we're calling one of our bonus episodes. And the format for the show, uh, you know, since we started Patreon, is that we have one public episode the first week of the month, and then the second week of the month we have a bonus show, which goes out to uh, patrons at Tier 2 and 3. And then the third week of the month we have another public show that goes out on our public feed through the website. And then the fourth week of the month we have a bonus content show. And we've been trying to do things uh, with the bonus content show that are a little bit different. And for this week's uh, episode, uh, we're, I'm pulling out about 18 minutes of recording that we did for Yankee Doodle Dandy, where we really kind of went off uh, track of talking about the movie and sort of our typical format and really started talking about, you know, some of the racism in the movie and some of the nationalism in the movie. And that got me thinking about how this, and uh, actually Bob mentions this in this recording, but how this uh, movie was almost a bridge between the four movies that we had done previously uh, with uh, black actors and our new series, which is on musicals. And so it's an interesting kind of uh, bridge between those two themes. And coming up next, uh, we have The Wizard of Oz. So we're going to be fully into the musicals. And then for the bonus content in February, uh, Bob and Nancy are going to Astoria, Oregon and visiting the film museum there because there's been quite a few movies filmed in Astoria and they're actually going there because it's a beautiful place and it's a great destination for a vacation and it happens to have a film museum so we're gonna have some bonus content uh, recording from that trip uh, but coming back to this episode uh, I'm gonna just do a quick kind of overview here of a couple things and then we'll get into that recording and then I'll come back and, and mention a couple things um, at the end but uh, the first one is that I found let's see one two three four websites that would be interesting I think to do more reading if this is uh, a topic especially around sort of the history of black cinema and the first one is the website theroot.com and they have a page called celebrating 100 years of black cinema and there's an interesting kind of introduction here which is um, Oscar Michaud is often lauded as the father of black filmmakers, but William D. Foster began producing films nearly a decade earlier than Michaud's first effort. In 1910, Foster, a sports writer for the Chicago Defender, formed the Foster Photoplay Company, the first independent African-American film company. Foster wasn't a complete stranger to show business. He had also worked as a press agent for vaudeville stars Burt Williams and George Walker. In 1912, Foster produced and directed The Railroad Porter, 
The film paid homage to the Keystone comic chases while attempting to address the pervasive derogatory stereotypes of blacks in film. And so that's kind of a, you know, uh, William D. Foster and Oscar Micheaux were really kind of two of the earliest producers of black cinema in the United States. And switching over to the next article here, uh, this is from humanities at ucla.edu it's a page called reconstructing the history of silent race films and this idea of of race films uh, and it's saying here that it's a designation applied to films produced for african-american audiences between 1910 and about 1950 and they acknowledge that the borders of the race film industry are complicated and porous but race films, uh, sorry, race filmmakers nevertheless con constituted a distinct community of practice. And then I thought this was interesting, and I um, this could probably be a whole other separate podcast. So again, this is bonus content for our, our patrons at Tier 3, and typically we don't get into these kinds of topics, but I think it's, um, you know, that's kind of the, one of the reasons we wanted to do the Patreon, so... There's an, a paragraph in this article that uh, says, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation in 1915 galvanized African-American writers, thinkers, and filmmakers. The film, a box office record breaker, is also hugely racist, a Civil War story that casts African-Americans as rapists and the Ku Klux Klan as heroes. Widely protested by African-American audiences, Birth of a Nation sparked a number of filmic responses, most obviously Birth of a Race in 1918, a famously troubled production conceived as a direct response to Griffith's film. So, yeah, I uh, have to say I haven't watched Birth of a Nation. I've, I've heard a lot about it. I'm, I'm kind of reticent to actually watch it, but probably should, just uh, to kind of round out my... Uh, viewing experience there so yeah another good article I would I'm going to put links to all of these in the show notes um, the next one gives a great sort of history all the way up to present day uh, at least up until uh, 2018 and is kind of I think this article may have been sparked by the fact that Moonlight uh, won an Oscar and in in 2016 I think um, but it, it has sections in this article about early breakthroughs and it, again it talks about Oscar Michaud um, and that kind of is categorized from 1919 to 1955 uh, there's one sentence in here that I liked or sorry one paragraph uh, the producer Barbara Bryant has noted there were more blacks being included in white films and there was a promise and a hope that this was going to be a bigger reality as integration progressed. So that's a quote from Barbara Bryant. And then the article goes on to say, a further complicating factor in the production of black independent cinema in the era was rising costs. As America, as America became increasingly market-oriented, it grew increasingly difficult to make features on the minuscule budgets exploited by trailblazers like Michaud, Williams, and Alexander. So I think I think we actually kind of talked a, a bit about that uh, during our uh, month of film uh, starring black actors. It 
some of those movies like the Harlem Rides of the Range is they were just made on so little money and there just wasn't a lot of money available for these productions so as the productions became more and more expensive it just became more and more difficult to break into that market and they were you know just kind of squeezed out of the market um, then they go on to talk about confrontation black exploitation and excitation from 1960 to 1973 and I have to say, this is an era that I, I'm not very familiar with, um, these movies, so I think that may be something that we can explore in the podcast in the future. Um, we've covered a couple, but I don't think we've covered any of the films that might be considered black exploitation. And then we get into what is titled in this article as L.A. Stories from 1976 to 84. And, yeah, that that seems pretty interesting because there's a series of films that were kind of set in Los Angeles and um, yeah that makes sense because there was a lot of activity happening in Los Angeles at that time and a lot of music came out of Los Angeles uh, in that period as well so then we get into what they call they've got to have us from 1986 to 1994 and then we start talking about Spike Lee here and films um, set more in, in New York City and and again it kind of gets outside the range of our podcast but I, I'm just going through these and uh, in hopes that maybe you know this is something that you could go out and read yourself and there's a tremendous list of films here that could be another whole series of podcast episodes so the last <laughs> moving on the last uh, website uh, 28 days, 28 films for Black History Month. And this again was from 2018. And uh, they list out 28 different films. And a few a few of these we've actually reviewed. Uh, but the first one is Within Our Gates, again directed by Oscar Micheaux from 1920. And so I think this is definitely a director that um, is, is somebody that we want to learn more about on the podcast. We'll probably cover a few of his films in the future. Uh, but they go. It goes all the way up to, um, well, 1996. I think is the last film that they list out in this particular list, and it's called The Watermelon Woman, directed by Cheryl uh, Dunye. So, again, some great resources out there, and uh, yeah, I encourage you to check those out. So. Without any further ado, I'm going to switch over to the recording from the Yankee Doodle Dandy podcast that we uh, took out of that particular episode and is now part of this one. I'll be right back after that. Nancy, what did you think of the film? You know, I used to love this film, and I I love the music and the dancing, and I, I want to say there's not a simple step that Cagney does. He's, he's a fabulous dancer. Um, I watched it every 4th of July for a number of years. But when we watched it this time, there were other issues that came uh, forward, uh, one being how insidious racism is, things that I had never seen before I saw this time. And even though I still love the music and the dancing, it, it sort of shifted my uh, perspective. 
on on the film yeah that's one of the things i definitely wanted to talk about because um one of the one of the scenes is is that big number where they have uh, all it's the big big number is it um i can't remember the but it there's so many there's so many musical numbers in it I've yeah, got i'm gonna str- i'm gonna struggle of... a little bit with like trying to identify those different numbers by by name of the music but it was essentially the one where the the screen kind of drops down at the end and there's a waving flag and, and it's kind of going through the history of the country and how oh, we've yes. added we've added states to the country and 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 then there's the scene where there are uh, black actors and dancers kind of looking up at a statue of Lincoln. Yes. And it was it was very much sort of like the way that it came across to me was like you know these black people should be grateful to Lincoln for you know freeing them from slavery, and there's no there's no um, recognition given to the struggle that those black people that black people went through, and the the, the and fought for. Uh, their freedom from slavery as well but it also made me think of the fact that in a in an oppressive society it's only the oppressors who can stop being the oppressors and then what what later in that in that same number they have all the dancers come out but the black the black people aren't in that number with all the dancers so it's sort of like they're there for a prop to kind of say hey we freed the slaves and that, and then there's another scene where they're showing fighting in the war, um, but that was the only two scenes that they were really in in that that big number about the history of our country, and I kind of found that problematic. Yeah, we we felt the same way. I I I forget now if we mentioned also that musical where they were in blackface and the talk about minstrel shows. Okay, so I got a story for you about that one. So I was on the plane when I was watching this and. I, I did not expect that to come up. I was holding my phone up and kind of looking at it in front of me. And then this blackface number comes on. And I'm like, whoa, where is this coming from? <laughs> and I like put my phone on. I said I was embarrassed because I was like, people are going to think, what is he watching? They're, they don't know that I'm watching this for a podcast, right? So, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe like you said, this movie is, is really seen as a patriotic movie. And people watch it year after year on July 4th as part of like their July 4th celebration. So, well, I, I, you know, just a few more things about this, which is they're in New York City. You don't see anything but Caucasians everywhere. Now, that's not New York then, and it isn't New York now. Hi, this is Matt again, just breaking in um, to mention that there are some really, really cool videos on YouTube uh, that show what life was like in New York City in the early 1900s and there's one in particular that I'll put a link to which is called 1930s Harlem New York City speed corrected with soundtrack and it's just interesting the speed correction itself makes the videos so much more uh, feel uh, have a feeling of life to them Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the old uh, film from that period but they were hand cranked and so sometimes they're they're too fast and sometimes they're too slow uh, but these have been uh, speed corrected and uh, I'm gonna put a link to a search where you can just watch a whole series of these kinds of films so yeah I, I think it's it's true what Nancy's saying there and at the same time 
as you watch these films, there still seems to be sort of this uh, segregation of of society, even you know, in New York City in the early 1900s. Uh, the the one that I mentioned, 1930s Harlem, is you know mainly black people, uh, which makes uh, I think sense because it's kind of film that has been compiled from uh, a nightclub and you know scenes around Harlem. Uh, where there were more black people uh, living. But then as you look at other uh, pieces of film, you know, honestly, the only black people I could see were driving cars like taxis. So something to consider. Um, we'll get back to the conversation that we're having here, and then I'll come back at the very end with a couple final thoughts. And when you look at the the audience of coming to their shows, you also don't see anything but Caucasians. It's it's really, um, it just really hit me hard about how insidious and quiet this can be, but still how really awful it is. Now, if if you're really good at compartmentalizing the music and the dancing and the story and and the love of family and all of that, it's still pretty wonderful, but it's hard to separate it out. This idea of representation in media, and not just for the sake of diversity and getting access to being able to create entertainment, like we've been talking about over the last four episodes and kind of the evolution of having more black people in film, but just this, the message that it sends to white children as they're watching these movies and they don't see any black people or if they see black people they're in roles of servitude and i know that this movie is a movie of its time it's from the early 40s and it it is representative of a certain period of time in that way but if i'm if i'm watching this and i and i and i all i ever see as like a, a white child growing up in in this society are black people in roles of servitude or in roles of uh, really minor sort of like kind of not consequential roles? I, I'm going to start to form sort of a view, a worldview of how things are. And I, and I think that that's another reason why diversity is so important and inclusion is so important so that as we're watching these things and, and as we're kind of forming our opinions as we're growing up, that we have a bigger sense of how things can be or should be. I, I agree with that totally, and I would broaden it out even to include uh, all all uh, different groups: Asians, Hispanic, First People Nations. Oh, totally. You look at the films, even today, the underrepresentation that takes place in the uh, in the industry in terms of some of these groups or the way they're presented even now. Um, and, and, and a, a diff little different note, but I watched The Irishman over the weekend, and the representation of the mob and the Italian connection was it, 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 maybe 10 years ago. You know, when we went to see Goodfellas, that really didn't register with me what they were doing. But when I watched The Irishman, I'm like, really? Can't we, can't we move away from that a little bit? Yeah. Or, or, or faster? Move away faster? But anyway, um, what do you think? What do you think about that? Well, I, it's certainly being talked about now because it's Academy Award season, and there's been 
lots of conversation um, in the papers and the radio, TV, and all of that. But I, I want to get back to your, your issue about children. You know, the great thing about kids is um, they can separate out. It's just the subtle message that gets in your brain that that's the bad thing. And, right. and for that reason alone, it's important for all of us to be exposed to all kinds of things. And, and there's just not enough of it. So um, I, I hope going forward that uh, that changes for the better. I think some, one of you used the word insidious. I think that that's a really good description of how this can work. It's insidious. Well, one of the things I struggled with when I wrote this, the introduction for today's podcast was how to talk about looking at a film from 1942 in the, in the year 2020 and, and how difficult that is. But on, a, on another note, it's a, this film is sort of a segue from the four that we just finished about diversity and then move, moving really completely into musicals with our next one. It's sort of a yeah. crossover. <laughs> and when, I, when we picked this one, I really didn't think of it that way. I just thought oh, it was, I was a great surprised. Musical. I had no idea that, that that was going to be such a big theme in how I felt about the movie. It's just the that aspect of the racism in the in the film. One of the things I wanted to find, and I did find it here in my notes, uh, Mr. Cagney was was under a lot of pressure because there was a lot of bad press about him, and it was it was all cleared and nothing. He never did any of these things that he was allegedly involved in. But his brother, William Cagney, was a producer on the film, and he's reported to have said to his brother, and I quote this, I'll make one word change, but we're going to have to make the gall-darndest patriotic picture that's ever been made. I think it's the Cohen story, the Cohan story. They, they, yeah. they really, they poured it on. I mean, gee whiz. Yeah, boy, you, you, yeah, if, you're, if you're not feeling patriotic after this movie, then... I don't know if any movie could make you feel patriotic. It's, it, but even that is a little bit problematic for me. I, I'm sorry. I was just kind of struggling with this this whole movie. Um, I, I I love the music and the dance numbers and and he is an amazing dancer and singer. I I, I guess I didn't I didn't realize that as as much as uh, maybe I should have. Uh, but this idea of like whipping people up into a frenzy and kind of getting them all excited about going off to war and how he won that congressional medal for those two songs and how the president at the end of the movie kind of congratulates him and on his importance to them winning the war. And, you know, that's, it kind of glosses over the terrible aspects of, of the war and how people don't come home or they come home, you know, not the same people as they were when they went off and, um, you know, it doesn't really talk about that in the in the film at all. You don't see you don't see sort of the aftermath of World War One or or uh, I guess it was just at the start of World War Two, so you wouldn't see that. But well, it, it came out like about less than six months after the Pearl Harbor attack, and it came out about maybe a month and a half after uh, the Philippines had fallen, and and there was this huge expansion of. German, Italian, and Japanese territory. So I, I can see it's almost in some ways a propaganda piece, but so many of these movies from World War II are that way. And again, in 1942, if I was sitting 
watching this film and I had just seen Pearl Harbor or watched it on the news newsreel, I probably wouldn't think of that other. Oh yeah, no. I... But we ran into that. Remember, we ran into that when we did the um, the uh, James Dean movie, East of Eden, when they were all marching off to go to World War One. And how oh, yeah, optimistic exactly everybody was, exactly. and, and then a few months later, there, it's turned out to be a lot more difficult and and ugly than anybody thought. Yeah. Well, certainly there was a huge amount of patri patriotism going on when this movie came out, and you know the the war had started, and and people probably needed a good shot in the arm. That was. Um, certainly before our time, Matt, you and I at least, and and your dad was just a teeny guy. So uh, it just, it I am believing and hoping that it, it raised people's spirits because they were going to be in for it for quite a while. Yeah, I want, I want you to check me on this thought if I'm really off base here, but I, I'd love to, something else I've been thinking about, and I agree, Mom, like, I, I think at this time, probably this was needed, uh, but we've been at, continue, we've been in a continual state of war almost since the early 90s, um, it feels like, and I was reading some articles about this um, around the world, and and it, it, it feels different now, I think, than it must have felt in, 19, in the early 1940s as we were kind of gearing up to go fight in Europe and fight in, in Asia. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't have gone off to do that because I think that it just it seems different to me what was going on at that time in the world than, than what's happening right now. Like the, the way this plays off to me right now is just, like a propaganda piece to get people to support another war where we've been at war for, you know, going on 30 years, but they, they, yeah, they called it the great war because it did feel as I, as I was reading about it and watching movies and things about this time period, that there was a lot at stake in terms of what the state of the world was going to be like, whether we won or whether the Axis powers won. I, I think about this movie and, uh, in relation to 9-11, how people felt a huge surge of nationalism when that all happened. And I can, I can only imagine a lot of those feelings were going on during World War I and World War II. These wars that are going on currently are not well understood and, and they didn't as much have a defining issue as World War One and Two and certainly nine eleven, and people are confused about them just as they were um, about the Vietnam War and and lots of different feelings, but but this those wars and certainly nine eleven, it was very clear why people would feel very um, want to feel patriotic. And, and really felt uh, nationalistic. I, I was going to move us to a little different uh, part of the film, and that is it was the largest or highest gross... So you can see Bob there um, trying to pull us back on track, and uh, which I think so. was appropriate because we really, I think, could have talked for another 30 minutes uh, about this. Um, and then we ended up that podcast with kind of that quote 
from uh, President Roosevelt, or at least that scene uh, w with uh, President Roosevelt. And, and I just want to close this episode out with a few thoughts around film as propaganda. And we talk a lot on the show about needing to view these films uh, from the past through the lens of history. Um, but really, not so much trying to put our mores and, and, and our views onto the films, but really trying to put ourselves into uh, a viewer of the film from that time. So if we're watching a movie from the 70s, what was going on in the 70s? How would we perceive this film as somebody who's watching it for the first time in the 70s and it's it's hard sometimes especially with a movie like Yankee Doodle Dandy to to do that and it also kind of gets at least me and I think Bob would concur gets us thinking about you know modern day film and and how film today might be seen 50 years from now and I, there's certainly been <laughs> movies in the last 10 years or 15 years that have sort of that nationalistic um, aspect to them. Um, there's one coming up soon here, Top Gun 2, for instance. Uh, if you think about Top Gun and, and sort of, you know, it almost has a propaganda uh, appeal to it. And, you know, Top Gun 2, I think, is more of a nostalgia film so many callbacks at least from the trailers uh to that original movie but this is something that i think it's just important to be aware of i don't know necessarily that it's a, a good thing or a bad thing um, i think it can be a bad thing if if we're being influenced by media and we're not aware of it uh, but if we're at least aware of it then we can you know think critically about it and i and i think that's part of why I wanted to put this show together as a bonus content episode just to pause and, and think critically about some of these topics and, and just have a chance to, to talk about them a bit. Um, as apparently we all felt like we needed to do during that original recording. So I'm going to close this out again with that uh, interaction with FDR at the end of the movie. And uh, we'll be back next week with The Wizard of Oz. Thanks again for listening, and happy movie watching. This is Matt coming to you from North Bend. Well, here I am going on like Tennyson's book, giving you the story of my life. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You should have stopped me. Why, I wanted to hear the story of your life. It has a direct bearing on my sending for you. Do you know what this is? Congressional Medal of Honor. Let's see what the inscription says. To George M. Cohan for his contribution to the American spirit. Over there, and grand old flag, presented by act of Congress. I congratulate you, Mr. Cohan. I understand you're the first person of your profession to receive this honor. You should be very proud. Oh, I am proud. In fact, I'm flabbergasted. The first time in my life I was speechless. I... Sure there isn't some mistake. Quite sure. But this medal is for people who have given their lives to their country or done something big. I'm just a song and dance man. Everybody knows that. A man may give his life to his country in many different ways, Mr. Cohan. And quite often, he isn't the best judge of how much he has given.
Your songs were a symbol of the American spirit. Over there was just as powerful a weapon as any cannon, as any battleship we had in the First World War. Today, we're all soldiers. We're all on the front. We need more songs to express America. I know you and your comrades will give them to us. Mr. President, I've just begun to earn this medal. It's quite a thing. Well, it's the best material we could find, what with priorities and all. Goodbye, sir. And uh, I want you to know that I'm not the only one that's grateful. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. And uh, I wouldn't worry about this country if I were you. We've got this thing licked. Where else in the world today could a plain guy like me come in and talk things over with the head man? Well, that's about as good a definition of America as any I've ever heard. Goodbye, Mr. Cohan, and good luck. Goodbye, sir, and good luck to you. Well, I don't hear anything. Send the word over there. 